often I run out of words. So you got to witness a unique thing there. All right. So a couple of points of explanation as we uh, open God's word together this morning. We are moving through a section of the book of Acts and we are looking at the distinguishing marks of the first Christians. What set them apart from the people around them? And I have made an editorial choice, and I just want to briefly explain it to you. I have skipped, for the sake of this series, chapter 12 in the book of Acts. A couple of reasons. Rusty's just shaking his head. How can you possibly do that? Um, there is nothing wrong with the 12th chapter of the book of Acts. Let me assure you, it is God's word. It's fully uh, uh, there for all of those purposes that God put it there for. I just felt that, well, there's two things. There's a passage I want to get to by the end of this series in, in Acts chapter 15. And then I didn't feel that Acts chapter 12... Uh, developed or brought out the thematic aspects of the marks of the early Christians as well as some of the chapters we've been in so far. And so I just made a editorial choice. That's, it's a head shaker, Rusty. I'm sorry. You, you know, I can help you look for other healthy churches in the area. Um, I'm, I'm willing to help, but uh, uh, that's... That's what's behind chapter 12, not being part of the series. Uh, so one of the disciples is martyred in chapter 12. Peter is put in prison, and he then is uh, miraculously freed from prison by an angel. And then uh, King Herod is eaten by worms. So there's chapter 12 in a nutshell. Okay, And uh, um, so I'm going to read... All of chapter 13, which I know just has you thrilled. Um, but I'm a context guy. I want to focus on the, on the latter section of chapter 13. But the context is important to understanding what's going on and, and why we're looking at this passage. So I'm going to just start at the beginning of chapter 13. And I'm going to start reading. And so get comfortable. Get a Bible. It's a, you know this, the part we're going to focus on is printed in your bulletin. If you want to follow along elsewhere, there's probably a Bible within reach if you didn't bring one. And so, or we we may have. Do we have all of chapter? It's going to be on the screen behind you. So, all right. So you can follow along that way as well. We're going to try to just get the full context of what uh, at this point uh, Saul and Barnabas are doing and why they're there and all that. And then we'll, we'll kind of look at the last part of this chapter for the marks that set these men apart, men and women apart, as children of God. All right. As you may recall, uh, we left the church in Antioch. Uh, Barnabas and Saul were there teaching for over a year, the new converts to Christianity. And... So that's where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole islands as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Pergia in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, 
they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. So, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Still there? All right. I find it amazing that we are still talking about this peasant who was born in Bethlehem and who grew up uh, in sort of the backwaters of Galilee. That this otherwise what would have been a completely obscure existence 
was not only capable of, of spreading a message of, of transformation throughout the near uh, Middle East and, and, I guess, Eastern Europe at the time, but that we're still talking about him today. That same basic message of reconciliation, forgiveness of sins, uh, something as both basic and unbelievable as the resurrection of Christ from the dead is still doing its work in human hearts and souls. You are part of a movement that has been going on for millennia. It's really crazy, if you think about it, that this simple message still transforms. And there are several clues in this text about why that simple message still does the powerful work of which it is so capable. But let's just pause for a moment and and look around and go, wow, uh, what are we doing here? <laughs> How did we get into the same room? Who's Who was born the farthest away? Any candidates? Laura? Colombia, Panama, very close. They actually used to be the same country, but yeah, not many people know that. That's right. Okay, so Panama. Anybody farther than Panama, born farther away than Panama? Any military kids born in South Korea or something like that? Hawaii is probably farther than Panama. Where? You were born in Hawaii? Okay, so we have two Hawaiians in the room. Aloha. Hang loose. Okay. That's it. Hawaii's as far away as we get. Wisconsin. (laughs) That's right. That's more culturally distant. Yes. Um, Okay. All right. Dan, what are you doing back there? What are you doing? Calm down. Calm down. All right. Yeah, I'm just, we're just gonna, okay. So, here we are. Not, not because of things we have in common, culturally, or anything else, really, but because of one transformational truth that has been passed down from human being to human being, uh, for Millennia. And so, what does this story in Acts chapter 13 call out of us? The, the first thing I would say is we are to be a people who know the story. We need to know this story, this very basic seminal truth of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. This is the stuff. 
So let's let's derive from from first Saul's preaching. Did you notice his name changes? This is the point in the book of Acts where his name goes from Saul to Paul. Um, and it's also the point where he really establishes himself as an apostle, as a, a bold, brave leader of the, of the movement uh, of the followers of Jesus Christ. And so the story that he recounts is rich in historical content. I mean, he goes way, way back into uh, the, the history of Israel, right? And he talks about their captivity in Egypt and their uh, coming into the promised land. And he talks about their first king, Saul, and, and their first prophet, really, Samuel. Um, but he talks about the replacement of Saul by this unlikely king, David, who also came from Bethlehem, but was the youngest in his family and not a likely candidate for king. And Saul, at this point, just reaches back and pulls all of the history of Israel into the person of Christ to confirm for us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. They all come to a focal point in the person of Christ. Literally, every promise God makes to his people is brought to bear on our souls through Christ. This is the point, if you will, the whole Old Testament points to Christ. What, 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 do, I, what do I want to say to you about this? Um, it can be difficult or intimidating to open up your Old Testament and read about Hittites and Amorites and Malachites and uh, Jebusites or whoever, right? And, and be thinking, what in the world does this mean? Every single book, chapter, passage, verse, word points to Christ. So we are called to gather up these pieces and understand them as one story. The story of God's redemption of humankind through Jesus Christ. And Saul does that beautifully as he addresses this largely Jewish audience. Um, so we're to understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God's promises. And we're to understand that Jesus provides the forgiveness for all of our sins. So, the reason, the real reason that uh, later Paul is run out of town, right, is he, he says something that is completely radical. He talks about freedom through Christ, 
that you could not attain by following the law. The institution of religion in which Saul and then Paul was preaching was all about the system. You work the law. It went like this. God gave us the law, so we darn well better follow the law. And if breaking the law means breaking fellowship with God, then we better, we better do this. We better make sure the law is clear, and then let's add as many little laws around it as we can to keep us from stepping on the line. And so law after law after law after law. And the burden is tremendous on, on the soul that simply wants to understand God's love. There's a lot of law between where we are and where we find the love of God. And so Paul speaks into this context and says, freedom. You can have freedom from all this burden. Christ has fulfilled the law. And he offers that fulfillment to you on the cross. And it's all proven, if you will, through the resurrection. There are two key theological components to what Paul is saying or Saul is saying at this point. Um, That Christ was physically raised from the dead. You heard that language about corruption, like David died and his body decayed, is what he's saying. Uh, he, He faced corruption, physical corruption. Jesus died and was laid in a tomb, and he was raised from the dead physically whole and ascended, taken up into heaven to the right hand of God the Father without his body ever decaying. So this is just a weird little Christian theological factoid for you, okay? Um, But the physically resurrected Jesus is still physical. I don't know how to explain it, but we as Christians have learned through church history, when you start messing with that particular doctrine, the physical resurrection of Christ, then the whole entirety of the rest of Scripture is changeable or corruptible or however you want to put it. So Christ is physically resurrected. I don't know how else to explain it. But he's not corrupted in that sense. And then, uh, I don't know if I said this earlier or not, but the other aspect is is the crucifixion itself. That he atoned for our sin on the cross. That he fulfilled all of the law and offered that to us. So, We're to know the story. The, just the basic transformative truth of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. This is mission critical to the continuation of the expansion of God's kingdom.
to somebody being able to look around a thousand years from now if Christ doesn't come back before then and say the same things that we're saying today. Look around. This is a miracle. The fact that we're here is really quite unbelievable. Okay. Know the story and share the story. Relate this basic transformative truth to the people around you, to the lives and hearts of those in your world. You see Saul and Barnabas doing this. They are, um, for lack of a better word, preaching it, right? I mean, they're, they're, this is gutsy stuff. They're in a, in an environment that they know will at some point turn hostile. They've seen it before, but that doesn't stop them. They proclaim the message. They share the story and they look for the thirst. As the story's clarity emerges, it, it divides. It cuts is probably a better word. And it separates those who are thirsty from those who are resistant. And Saul and Barnabas uh, effectively, are, are you see them gravitate towards those who are thirsty. And, and we are to do the same thing. Um, it can be very tempting when you have uh, family members or friends that are, to some degree, hostile to your faith, who, who make fun of you or don't take you seriously or otherwise want to dismiss what you believe. It can be very tempting to, to want to go toe-to-toe with them, right? You've done this before? You faced this temptation. Uh, and basically, God says, just let me handle this. And you move, you flow into the lives of those who are thirsty, who are interested, who are engaged. And, and let me handle the, the hardness of heart thing. That's kind of my deal. And you just... Go where there's interest and trust me, right? We're to share the story. We look for the thirst and it is to be quenched with grace. So uh, is it Paul and Barnabas by this point? I think it is. Um, they are They are leaving... Let's see. As they went out, people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue, this is in verse 43, in the grace of God. The thirst is quenched with grace. It would have been very easy, frighteningly easy, for Paul and Barnabas to have said, Hey, we just have a couple of little laws here for you. We're, we're trading, you know, 473 laws 
for just this handful of laws. Does that sound like a good deal? So make sure you give and make sure that you come to church and make sure that you do this and you do that and then we're good. And everybody would have been sweet. I just gave up you know, hundreds of laws for just a handful of laws. But they don't say that. They say continue in grace. In other words, you're forgiven and the only thing you add to your salvation is your sin. Oh, great. Good job. Right? Grace is what quenches spiritual thirst. And Paul and Barnabas understood that. And if you think about Paul, who was a Pharisee, who was all about the law, and the only thing he gives these thirsty souls is that they continue in grace. That's pretty intense. And so we look for the thirst. We quench it only with the grace of God. And we expect opposition. So... Insofar as we look for the thirsty, we move toward that. Uh, we move away from that resistance. And you see this uh, sort of classic phrase, they dusted off their feet and they moved on. Um, <laughs> there are times where we would do well to dust off our feet and move on and quit banging our head against certain kinds of walls. Um, this is not a call to escape. It's a call to wisdom and the following of the Holy Spirit. God has things that he wants to do through you. And if we are killing ourselves on fighting battles that cannot be won on human terms, God says, can I use all that energy for something more constructive, please? And we are called to move toward where the interest lies. So we share, we know the story, we share the story, and we are called to enjoy the story. Did you notice there's a little verse in here? I believe it's in 48. When the Gentiles heard this, so, so they've faced resistance from the Jewish leadership who were kind of freaking out because there's some new stuff being taught. And they turn and they basically say, we knew, we knew ahead of time y'all weren't going to like this very much, but God sent us here actually for the non-Jews because he wants them to know that he loves them too. And the non-Jews, the Gentiles as they are called here, uh, are floored. He, Paul actually quotes an Old Testament verse um, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. 
And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then it says, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So, God has a plan. And here's the even more shocking aspect of that. We're part of it. Not because you're smart or you're pretty. Not looking at anybody in particular. Um, Not because you figured out something that nobody else figured out but because God appointed you to be part of his family. And somehow, as we better understand the story and share that story with others, God spreads his word and grows his kingdom through people. But it's all part of a plan. I do not pretend to understand the fullness of that plan. I don't know why I'm here. I kind of think God's crazy, personally. But here we are. And there is an aspect to that simple truth that should cause every one of us to rejoice, to be joyful, to say, thank you. I don't get it, but I got it. And you are a part of of God's eternal plan. You, you're in. You're His. And He is using you to grow His kingdom. Yes, there is mystery here. I, I, there's, there's a sense in which no one gets in except those who are appointed. And then there's a sense that the people who get in are the people whose lives you touch. Both of those things are true. God is using you to grow his kingdom. He also is using you to grow his kingdom according to a very intentional plan. That we won't fully understand, but we can know this. He's got this. And we are brought into that for some bizarre reason. And we should be thankful. And rejoice in that truth. You're part of his plan. And you are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. This passage also reminds us. God has chosen to take up residence in your heart. Think about that for a minute. Where do most gods live? Pick one. Okay, Buddha, yeah, uh, up on a mountain, good answer. Buddha never really meant to be a god. It wasn't until he his ideas got to China that he was turned into a god because the Chinese needed gods. They just, you know, they needed that. Um, gods live in temples, on tops of mountains. Uh, your god lives in your messy heart. That's crazy, isn't it? 
Think of all the places he could go. Did you see the picture of the Grand Canyon up there earlier? He could go live there. And yet, he chooses to live to indwell our hearts as messed up as they are, as confused as they can be, as sinful as they start this journey. He chooses to live there in the mess. He gets his hands dirty and takes up residence within us. Which means you, and this passage bears this out beautifully, you are given a joy which no one can steal. If God resides in your heart, that's a pretty good protection plan. Um, You're safe. You are secure. You are held. And there's a, there's a rest in that and there's a joy in that. And the, the people who were told the story, who the story, to whom the story was shared and imparted and the story became, well, became alive again in their hearts and souls, those very people left with two things, filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy. We have something that no one can take away. And it's the mark of a Christian that you have been changed forever. That God lives within you and gives you a joy that defies your circumstances. In fact, I don't think we really know what joy is until we see tragedy and suffering and sorrow. And then we have this deposit that transcends all of our circumstances. And we get to see the value of it with great clarity at times. You have a story. And it's not just a story that you have to tell. You're part of the story. You're included in the the history of redemption. You're part of God's story. And he lives in your heart and he's changed who you are. You have freedom, you have forgiveness, you have joy, and you have the presence of the Holy Spirit. Will you pray with me? God our Father, we thank you that you have marked us with these traits as a people who are part of your story. Help us to better understand your story. And more importantly, help us to share your story with others. And most of all, Lord, bring us to the point of rejoicing in your story in the change that it brings about in our lives and the change that it brings about in our world. Thank you for this incredible grace. May we show it to the people around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.